Let me pray for us. Father, as we look to your word now, as we ponder the greatest event in human history, the death and resurrection of Jesus, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your truth this morning. Create in us a spirit of worship and delight in the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, <coughs> I wonder, um, I'm guessing all of us um, have moments in life, moments that we've had with family members or close friends or even godly mentors where individuals, someone has spoken very personal words to you, significant words, words that impacted your life, um, a statement, maybe a sentence, or maybe it was a book or a paragraph or even a, a sentence you read by an author that, that deeply impacted you and, and you've held on to that statement for your whole life. Probably some of us have a friend who has said something or a pastor who has said something or a mentor who has said something that has deeply impacted you. I remember when I was about 19 years old and I think, I think I've shared this story before, but I was struggling with what I was supposed to do. I, I wasn't sure if ministry was really for me based upon some experiences I had. And I remember my uncle's words when he said to me, there's, there's lots of things I don't know in life, Peter, and, and I don't know all that God has for you, but one thing I do know is that you were called to preach God's words. Those words were deeply personal to me. They, they penetrated my heart, and I've held on to those words ever since, and, and it's partly why I keep preaching God's word. But there's also uh, the significance of what I would call historical words, words that have shaped human history in profound ways. For example, you think of Winston Churchill's famous speech in, in preparing Britain to, to defend themselves against uh, the Nazi regime under Hitler, where he said, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and, and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. There are moments in history where words have been said, speeches have been made that have impacted human history. You think of Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream. And that speech has forever defined the civil rights movement. 
There are words in history that have forever shaped and defined history. But there is no one who has shaped human history with words like Jesus did. The words of Jesus have penetrated the minds and hearts of people for over 2,000 years. Jesus said some very profound things, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or you take, for example, the, the Sermon on the Mount. That is probably the greatest speech or, or sermon on, on virtue, goodness, and morality that's ever been recorded. Even many staunch atheists marvel at the Sermon on the Mount. Yet probably the most significant thing that Jesus ever said was one word. This one word, which in the English we translate as, it is finished. The final words that Jesus spoke while he hung on that Roman cross, that, that tree of torture, shame, and humiliation. It is these words that have forever altered history and eternity. It is these words, when properly understood, are medicine to the soul, wine that brings everlasting joy and happiness, rest for the weary. As A.W. Pink states, It is finished is but one word in the original, yet in that word is wrapped up the gospel of God. In that word is contained the ground of the believer's assurance. In that word is discovered the sum of all joy and the very spirit of all divine consolation. There are seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross. There's, for example, lamentation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's words of forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. There's words of assurance to the thief beside him. Today you will be with me in paradise. But this statement, it is finished, is a cry of triumph. It is, as Pink declares, his cry of jubilation. And so this morning, I want to ask, what does this cry of jubilation mean? What is the significance of these words from, from Jesus' mouth while he hung on that Roman tree? Because you've got to understand, there were those, in fact, all who were in the crowd didn't understand that word that Jesus declared. It wasn't until the resurrection that everything came together in their minds. So what does it is finished mean? Well, one, it's finished means that Christ, the Son of God, has accomplished all the work his Father gave him to do. 
John chapter 4, when Jesus is having this conversation with the Samaritan woman, and, and after he's done the conversation, the disciples return to him, and this is what we read. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That is the food of Jesus. It is to do the will of his father. It is to accomplish the work that the father gave him to do. In John 17, verses 4 to 5, Jesus is, it's his high priestly prayer just before his betrayal and death. And in his prayer, he says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Jesus is praying this in anticipation of the fact that his death is just around the corner. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, Jesus came into this world to do the will of his Father. What was the will of his Father? Well, we just read, for example, before Pilate, that Jesus was called to testify to the truth. Jesus came also to reveal God, to heal the sick, to conquer Satan, to bring the kingdom of God, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, to die for the sins of the world, to live the perfect life that we could not live. And this work that Christ was given was not something new. It wasn't some new idea in the mind of God. The Son's face was set toward this work in eternity past. God the Father was the orchestrator of redemption. He planned redemption. God the Son was the doer, the, the worker of redemption. God the Spirit was the applier of redemption. He would take what Christ did through his death and resurrection and ascension, and he would then apply it to the hearts of his people. You see, Christ's work, his, his death, was, was planned before the foundation of the world. He was slain before the foundation of the world. His work was prophesied and foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament. His work was, was first made mention of in, in Genesis 3.15. Despite Adam and Eve's sin, God didn't leave them without hope. In Genesis 3.15, when God is, is speaking to the serpent, he says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So all the way at the very beginning of biblical revelation, in Genesis chapter 3, God is already pointing forward to the fact that there will be a seed who will come from the woman, and he will bruise the head of the serpent, though he himself will be bruised as well. Not only that, God promised Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. 
And the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.16 declares that this seed is none other than Christ himself. His work was also foreshadowed in, in the Passover lamb when, when the angel of death descended upon Egypt. And the only protection from death was the blood of the lamb marked on the doorposts of one's home. His work was foreshadowed by the role of the high priest. The high priest in the Old Testament was to be the mediator between God and the people. Jesus is the great high priest who is our mediator. He was also foreshadowed, his work was also foreshadowed in the kings of Israel. He was, is to establish his righteous eternal kingdom. His work was also foreshadowed by the sacrificial system. Both the lamb that was slain on the day of the atonement and, and the blood that would be sprinkled on the altar into the Holy of Holies and also the scapegoat where, where the high priest would, would place his hands on the head of the goat representing the sin of uh, Israel. And then, he would, and then this, this goat would be released into the wilderness symbolizing God's removing sin from the presence of his people. His work was also foreshadowed in, in Jonah. As Jesus says in Matthew 12, 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Or the manna from heaven in the wilderness, pointing forward, foreshadowing Jesus as the bread of life. Or the rock that Moses struck in order for water to flow to the people of Israel that Paul tells us was Christ. Moses struck Christ. Or all the prophecies in the major and minor prophets that speak to the work of God's Messiah. Messiah. For example, Isaiah 53. You see, his face, Christ's face was set toward the cross and accomplishing the work his father gave him to do. This work was planned before the foundations of the world, and in his work, he would not fail. His words, it is finished, was his declaration that he accomplished all that the father gave him to do. How many of us on our deathbeds will be able to say it is finished with a voice of triumph. To look at our lives and believe that we became who we were meant to be and, and lived and did all that God desired for us to do. It is only Christ who can say that. He did all that he was supposed to do. He is all what we ought to be. And this is why, church, our confidence doesn't reside in the work we do for God. For our work and our efforts are always imperfect. They always fall short. No, no. Our confidence and hope is in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. By faith, His life becomes ours. His work in a sense, becomes ours. For we are hidden with Christ in God. We have been united to Christ. We are in Him. And so all that He has done, He has done on our behalf. This is why the, 
The famous hymn, Upon a Life I Have Not Lived, captures this so well. On merit not my own I stand, on doings which I have not done. Merit beyond what I can claim, doings more perfect than my own. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. In those words, it is finished. Christ is declaring his work is done. He has done all that the Father has given him to do. Secondly, it is finished means that Christ has effectively paid the penalty for our sins. The reason Christ could, could declare it is finished was because he understood that on the cross he had effectively paid the penalty for sin on behalf of humanity. In other words, he bore our condemnation on our behalf and in our place. And when he declared it is finished, he was saying that the payment for sin had been made. The scriptures make clear that every human has fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned and rebelled against our Creator. And because of this, the scriptures tell us that we are under the just condemnation of God as the righteous judge of the universe. As God declares in Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But then hear this, but he will by no means clear the guilty. He is the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's forgiving iniquity and, and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. How can he forgive iniquity and transgression, yet by no means clear the guilty? The answer is Christ. It is Jesus Christ who bears our guilt so that God then can forgive us of our sins. In Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law which God gave, the law is good, but we have broken the law. And therefore, we are under the curse of the law. The, we are guilty because of the law. We are under the judgment of the law. But Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In other words, Christ on the cross bore the curse of the law in our place. He took the punishment that we deserved. The reason God can forgive the sinner is because Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, bore our sin and guilt and became cursed. The curse that should have fallen on us for breaking God's holy, righteous law fell on Christ. And when he declared it is finished, he was declaring that justice was now satisfied. The pure justice of God was satisfied. Listen, Jesus was not surprised 
by this day where he would bear the curse of the law, nor was it forced upon him. As he declares in John 10, 17 to 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Caiaphas didn't take Christ's life from him. Pilate didn't take Christ's life from him. The Jews did not take his life from him. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, when you read the Gospels, the cross and the payment for sin was not an afterthought for Jesus. It was always at the forefront. It's what directed and governed his whole ministry. This is why when you read the Gospels, they're, they're not typical biographies because they, they primarily focus in on the final week of Jesus' life. And that's intentional because it's the final week that has the most significance for humanity. For in that final week will be his death and his resurrection. This was his purpose. He would die for the sins of the world. As 1 John 3, 5 says, You know that he appeared. That is, you know that Christ appeared. Why? In order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Or 1 Timothy 1, 15. I, I use this verse a lot because it's, it's so clear. Paul writes, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's trustworthy and it, and it deserves your response. It deserves your acceptance, your reception that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Kids, I want to speak to you for a, a moment here. There is probably someone in your life that you trust very deeply. Maybe it's, it's a parent like your mother or, or your dad or maybe a sibling or a friend. Yet I have news for you. At some point, every single one of those individuals will break your trust. But God, God on the other hand, is fully trustworthy. And so when he says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that it is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, it means, kids, that you can trust that with your life. You can trust that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners with your life. And so I implore you, kids, to trust in Jesus Christ alone. For the forgiveness of sins. See, when Jesus declared from that cross, it is finished, he declared victory over sin by bearing sin in his body. As A.W. Pink says, the cross of Christ then is the grave of our sins. It is finished means that all our sin has been killed in the cross of Christ. This is why the famous hymn declares, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, 
but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. It is finished means Christ has effectively paid the penalty for our sin. Thirdly, it is finished means that Christ has secured our redemption and purchased all the benefits of said redemption. Now this, of course, is tied to his dying for our sins, but it's more than just that. Redemption doesn't end with the forgiveness of sins. It merely begins with the forgiveness of sins. If, if you think salvation, redemption, is only the forgiveness of sins, you know not the full depth of Christ's finished work and what his death actually accomplished. In Hebrews 9, 11 to 12, we read this about Christ. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. See, the high, high priest in the Old Testament, he would enter into the tent, the, the earthly tabernacle. He would enter into the holy of holies with, with the blood of goats and, and calves. But Jesus, he did not enter into that tent, but he entered into the greater tent, the tent into the presence of God. And we're told here, he entered into this place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. And in doing that, we are told, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secured our redemption. Now that word secured is so important. You see, when Christ declared it is finished, he didn't merely make redemption possible, but he accomplished and secured our redemption. Our redemption has been secured within an, within an unbreakable safe, namely Christ himself. But not only did he secure our redemption, he also purchased all the benefits of our redemption. All the blessings, gifts, privileges, promises were purchased by Christ. When Christ in Luke 22, 14-20, instituted the Lord's Supper and declared, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What do you think Jesus meant by that? Well, everything, everything entailed in the new covenant has been purchased by the blood of Christ. In other words, it is finished means that all the elements of redemption, all the benefits, the blessings have been secured by Christ's death. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. You see, Christ's death has secured, for example, the new birth and regeneration. 
The sealing of the Holy Spirit has been secured by Christ's death. The gifts of the Spirit have been secured by Christ's death. Our reconciliation to God has been secured by Christ's death. Our justification, our sanctification, our adoption, our preservation, our resurrection, our glorification have been secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sharing in the divine nature, as the Apostle Peter puts it, our reigning with Christ, the new creation being ours, every promise of God has been secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ purchased all the benefits of the new covenant. He did not just purchase one room in the house. He purchased the whole house for us. Oh, how much has been given to us through Christ's work on the cross. Brothers and sisters, it is finished. So we've seen that Christ has secured our redemption and purchased all the benefits of that said redemption. Fourth thing that I want us to see in this statement, it is finished means that Christ has decisively conquered Satan at the cross. In Hebrews 2.14, the writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise partook of the same things. That is, he took on our humanity in the incarnation in our flesh and blood. Why? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. You see the irony in that? The one who has the power of death is destroyed by Christ, by his own death. He destroys Satan's power over death by dying himself. The scriptures tell us that we were once under the tyranny of Satan, slaves to his will. But Christ on that cross overcame Satan's reign in our life, in our lives, and destroyed his weaponry against us. That's precisely what Paul records for us in Colossians 2, 13 to 15, where he says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So, so you and I, as, as followers of Christ, before we, we came to faith in Jesus, we were dead, dead in our sins. But God made us alive. He, and how did he do this? He, he forgave us all of our trespasses. But how did he actually forgive us all of our trespasses? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, there was this record of debt that stood against you and I. This record of debt of all of our sins. It condemned us before God. But Christ, he, he took this record of debt, he set it aside, he, he destroyed it. How? By nailing it to the cross. Our record of debt was nailed to the cross. And verse 15 
tells us what happened to Satan's power over us when Christ nailed our debt to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Did you catch that? Christ disarmed the demonic powers. He took their weaponry away, their power over death. He took their weaponry away. How? By nailing our record of debt to the cross. In other words, Satan has no power to condemn us anymore because our sin has already been condemned in the cross. You see, from the naked eye, it would have looked as though Satan had won at the cross. It looked as though the religious leaders were right. From all appearances, Christ seemed to be a fraud. If he's truly the Son of God, come down from there. You can only imagine how satisfied Caiaphas and the rest of the Jews felt seeing Christ suffering on that cross, defeated, humiliated. He had no sword, no shield to defend himself, no armor to bear. They mocked him and spat on him. Yet as his blood flowed down, his body dripping into the soil of the earth, war was being mounted against Satan, sin, and death. The serpent would bruise his heel, but he would bruise the head of the serpent. In that declaration, it is finished. Christ did not merely declare war against Satan. It was his announcement that he had won the war. No longer would Satan have any power over the children of God. It is finished. But this leaves us with a question. If Christ's work was finished at the cross, why the resurrection? Why the need for Jesus to rise from the dead? Well, there's several reasons, but I will only touch on one. And this leads to my final point. Christ has proven his words of triumph by rising from the dead. You see, the resurrection of Christ is the visible proof that his cross work was truly a triumph and not a defeat. Everyone who saw Christ crucified believed that he was not who he claimed to be in that moment. He was not the Messiah in their minds. There's no way he could be the Son of God. The Son of God could not be crucified. He was not the one who, who had the words of eternal life. He was not the one who had the authority to forgive sins. It was all a lie. But on Easter Sunday, the lie became true. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was the one who gives eternal life. He was the one who has authority to forgive sins. And friends, he is still the one who has such authority. The resurrection was his vindication. 
As 1 Timothy 3.16 declares, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. What is this, this mystery of godliness that we confess as Christians? He was manifested in the flesh, his incarnation. And then he says this, he was vindicated by the Spirit, his resurrection. He was vindicated at his resurrection, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 1, 1 to 4, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared, pronounced to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? Why? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. When Christ rose from the dead, he did not become the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God. It was made visible, revealed to be the Son of God. You see, his resurrection, in a sense, is the icing on the cake. He defeated sin, death, and the devil, and the resurrection proves it. This man, this man, Jesus, left death in its tomb. This man has reversed the effects of death. You see, the cross and the resurrection stand at the center of our faith. And it's in such a time as this where we see the significance and the value of the cross and the resurrection. Right now, we are being reminded of the reality of death in our world. Over 100,000 people globally have died due to this pandemic alone. And that number is going to only rise more and more in the coming weeks and months. And we haven't even talked about any of the other deaths in our world. You see, it would seem that death is winning. But the cross and the resurrection of Christ would tell us otherwise. The cross and the resurrection of Christ would tell us as followers of Jesus that though we die, yet shall we live forevermore. Death doesn't have the final word. You see, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus stands at the center of our reality. Without it, hear me, without it, Christianity has nothing to offer us. If there is no cross and there is no resurrection, there is no point in being a follower of Jesus. As one writer says, the resurrection is either the whole hope of the world, the very center of reality, or Christianity is not worth our time if it's merely a symbol to hell with it. You see, the literal historical resurrection of Jesus is proof that Christ did triumph on the cross. It is finished was his cry of victory. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's, the mighty victor's brow. The highest place 
that heaven affords is his by sovereign right. The King of kings and Lord of lords and heaven's eternal light. The joy of all who dwell above, the joy of all below, to whom he manifests his love and grants his name to know. So how ought we to respond to all of this? Well, to the Christian, I want to say this to you. Those words, it is finished, should be sweetness to your soul. It should be the place you rest secure. There is nothing left for you to do but merely rest on your Savior's breast. Worship and delight yourself in the one who died for you. The cross and the resurrection is the greatest painting to ever behold, and we ought to respond in worship to him. It also means that we ought to not be ashamed of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We ought not be ashamed of our Savior. We ought to boast in Christ. As Paul writes in Galatians 6, 14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world had been crucified to me and I to the world. But to those of you who may not be a Christian, may be seeking, may be seeking, may be a skeptic, may be wrestling, friend, I want you to hear this, that Christ is your only hope. He offers you forgiveness, but more than that, he offers you eternal life, resurrection life, but more than that, he offers you himself intimacy and fellowship with the one who made you the source of all goodness, beauty, and truth. Listen, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. All you can do is bow your knee to the one who declared it is finished. He has done everything that is necessary for you to be saved. So come to him. Don't attempt to prove yourself to God. Don't attempt to think that you can somehow make yourself right with God by your own good works and deeds. You will surely fail. There is only one person's life that is acceptable to God, and his name is Jesus. Your refusal to accept Christ's finished work on your behalf is to belittle all that he has done. Imagine if you were living when Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel. Imagine that, that you got to enter into that room after he had just finished and you, and you saw this, this beautiful painting, this incredible work of art, and you decide to pull out a ladder and climb the top of the ladder and begin adding some paint to this beautiful painting that was complete. You would be spitting on all of Michelangelo's work in that moment. You would be saying that this isn't good enough, this isn't complete, it's not finished, it needs a little bit more of my touch. 
Now we know that that would be utterly absurd. Which of us could truly add to that incredible work of art? Yet that's what many of us do when it comes to the work of art that Christ accomplished on the cross. We tend to think that we can do something to add to his work. Friend, he has done it all. His work on the cross is the most beautiful work of art in human history. There is only one response to the finished painting of Christ's redemptive work, and that response is surrender and worship. To bow your knee to the crucified, risen King and to worship Him all the days of your life. I pray that this Easter morning, when Christ came up from the grave, I pray that that would be your story today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the salvation that you have accomplished in Christ Jesus. We thank you for his death, but we also thank you that he did not remain dead, but he rose, conquering sin and death on our behalf. We give you our lives, Lord. Use them in whatever way you desire. We pray this in Christ's name.